Hello, this is Russell Brand, Under the Skin. We need your help because we have to find advertisers so that we can afford to make this show. Will you fill in a survey for us, please? You have to go to podsurvey.com forward slash brand and fill in that survey. Even if you've done a survey before and you think, oh, I don't want to do a survey, it's boring, it'll take ages, please do it. And you might win a $100 Amazon gift card. But you probably won't win that. I'd just like you to do it out of a little thing called kindness. So go to podsurvey.com dot com slash brand also i need you to do something now it's very important go and subscribe to our show please and rate and review it on itunes only five star reviews please if you're thinking i'm going to do a one star what just don't bother go and do something else we need five star ones because we've got to build up momentum all right thanks enjoy the show And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin, my new podcast in which we, by we I mean I, get under the skin of a variety of topics, human beings, issues of the day, and possibly I get under the skin of even you, the most devoted listener, coming here perhaps to learn something, to get a new perspective on the world. My first ever guest on Under the Skin is an academic and writer that I have been inspired to interview by my own by, by embarking myself on an academic journey late in life. You may know that I go to SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, where I'm doing a three-year MA on religion in global politics. My first guest was the first person that I read there that I thought, oh my God, I understand this. And I got the thrill of learning, the thrill of new knowledge and the sort of possibility that, yes, going on this university course has not been a terrible mistake or a bizarre pastiche on a John Hughes film where a famous 41-year-old man goes back to college for inexplicable reasons, sits listlessly in a canteen looking at 20-year-olds who are really, really attractive and now across an impossible moat because that man is now married and has a baby and it's like a sarcastic film where you're sent back to college to fulfil your dream but now you're sort of married. Dr. Brad Evans. He's an actual doctor on top of everything else. Let me just give you a bit of a lowdown before we introduce Brad so that you know the score and what I'm talking about. Brad Evans is a senior lecturer in international relations at the School of Politics and International Studies at the University of Bristol. He's the founder and director of the Histories of Violence Project. His latest books include Liberal Terror and Resilient Life, The Art of Living Dangerously. That's a separate book from Liberal Terror. Liberal Terror is the book that I... Like, when you're at university, I don't know if you know this, you might not go to university, they force you to do some reading. Now, if you're me, you think, I ain't doing that. It's like it's the same as school. You've sort of simply refused to do it. But on the week we were doing Brad Evans's work on liberal terror, uh, we had to. my group had to do a presentation. So I was forced, it was necessary that I read Brad's work. Now, I was fascinated and excited because the work I read introduced the relationship between liberalism or sort of governments in the West as we see them today and their relationship with terrorism, the interrelationship. The one sentence that I've been bandying about, shouting in the face of anyone who will listen ever since is, there is no such thing as militant, uh, as Muslim militancy distinct and separate from Western secularism and Western imperial objectives. These two things intersect, they are intertwined, they feed one another. And that's just one of the sentences that I enjoyed from reading a section of Brad Evans's book. Brad, the reason I wanted you to be my first guest on Under the Skin was to help me and our listeners understand why is the world like it is today in terms of the terrible dread we have around terrorism, the fear we have around migration, the sudden lurch to the right, as demonstrated by Brexit and the rise of Trump and the alt-right. Why are these things happening? 
Well, I want to go to bed. I'm tired. Give me my money back. All of those things and more. Brad Evans. So thank you for coming, first of all. That's quite a lot of questions to hit a man with who's only just sat down. Nice scarf. Thanks for the books. Brad. It's a real pleasure to come and chat with you, Russell. Um, first of all, it's, you know, it's a real honour that, to, to know that my work actually reaches beyond academia and can kind of inspire you and to, to, to get you to think about the world differently. So that in itself uh, means I'm doing something perhaps right. <laughs> it certainly does, yeah, yeah because like, as I said, being in the academic world just briefly as I have been, obviously loads of it's really, really exciting, but I think being a mischievous student, a lot of the things I hear feel reiterative. Like I sort of think, well, I knew that anyway when they say, well, there's no such thing as a country really. A country is just an agreement in our mind that this is Britain or this is the United States of America, what is a state, what is sovereignty, those kind of things I'd come to myself. But then there are sometimes ideas that are so complex that I can't begin to get to terms with them. And the way that this particular subject, religion in global politics, works is there's the intersection of political history, critical theory, you know, like all, all manner of things like philosophy. So I'm suddenly having to learn about Foucault, Derrida, people whose names I can't even say confidently yet, all Habermas, all, all sort of simultaneously at once. And like the, and my original impulse for doing that course was like I like in the last year or two got sort of nuts deep in the political world like you know first of all sort of telling people that I didn't think there's any point in voting because dem democracy is a facade and an illusion and then at some point having Ed Miliband come around my house and saying look you should vote because there are sort of minute differences that would make it preferable to the Tories I realised that this was a very complex world and I didn't have the armoury the artillery to engage in this battle and like I, I, as I said to you when I like read your work, I thought, oh, this is the sort of stuff you need to know because this is teaching you the structure of politics, the history and lineage of the ideas that we're labouring under, broadly speaking, unconsciously. Now, I would like our listeners to be able to sort of embark on this journey. I understand already from the, the you know, the discursive nature uh, of my ongoing ramble that there are many, many threads. But what do you think is a good entry point for anyone like me who feels disillusioned with politics but doesn't know quite where to begin yeah. on a journey of understanding? Well, I think that disillusionment, first of all, is really palpable and it's felt in the broader publics. And I think part of the, the issue, first of all, is that um, on the one hand, um, power now operates in this, what we might call the global space of flows. And our capacity to actually change the world is still kind of wedded to these nationalistic models for trying to change the world. And then we kind of feel redundant because we know that the change is not going to happen through those types of mechanisms. And on the one hand, you know, um, again, I've kind of admired the way you've tried to, um, in the kind of the public engagements you've, you've done, is try to say, well, first of all, Let's try to maybe rethink what politics might mean, and I think that certainly resonates with me. But I think the first thing that we need to kind of, you know, before we go into all that, is just asking the very, you know, the difficult but right types of questions. And that, for me, is one of the purposes of an academic, is it's not necessarily to impose dogmatic truths upon the world, and I think we've, had, we've suffered from that far too much. It's more about how can we raise the right types of questions starting from the premise, actually, that the world is very complex, the, the world is very difficult to engage with. Um, and once we start from that premise of, you know, the complexity of the world, the need to have a rigorous historical understanding of what the world might mean. In other words, you know, how did we get to this position? And I think mm. one of the questions then, which mm. a lot of the critical theorists ask is, you know, what is the time in which we're living? Right? Mm. What is this current moment or what, you know, the... 
and the cultural theorist Stuart Hall called, what is the historical conjuncture? What makes this moment this moment? Yeah. Um, and then how can we kind of draw upon some of you know what's particularly novel about this moment, but also some of the historical you know continuities, particularly in terms of the abuse of power, and and why is it especially that we often put the blame of you know, of society's ills on the shoulders of the most vulnerable? Mm. Why is it that there's this constant historical process of scapegoating? And in that sense, there's a lot to be learned from history, but also we need to ask the more contemporary you know, significance around this and how we can kind of make sense of that. And, and that demands also, I think, you know, um, something which requires us to move out of, in, in academic senses, out of the conceit, first of all, of various disciplinary positions. You know, there is no singular truth into this you know we have to engage with questions around philosophy politics sociology you know psychology because the real world doesn't operate in regards to those disciplinary parameters and we have to kind of make sense of that i understand terms. what you mean but that, i feel that that's something that requires a clear example now mm. like the, how i understood that was uh, like i alluded to it briefly for a moment is that when we talk about for example one of the defining current affairs issues of our time that sort of generates a lot of fear and a lot of division, a lot of rhetoric and a, a lot of conflict is uh, Muslim militancy. Now, when I read in your book, uh, Liberal Terror, there is no such thing as Muslim militancy separate from, uh, say, for example, US imperialism. Could you describe that idea of how those two things are historically and if, if not ideologically, practically interwoven in a way that people just go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so part of the, the project which I've tried to map out over the last you know, 15 years follows, I guess, a, you know, a broader critical tradition around the idea that every regime of power seems to produce its own forms of what we might call mimetic rivals, right? The, the rivals which those regimes of power kind of depend upon in order to articulate their own conceptions of power to give them a sense of identity. Mm. Um, and now, if you look, for instance, in terms of the context of terror, the term terror has a much broader historical significance. You know, if you look at the old colonial seafaring powers, they had the pirates. 20th century national projects had nationalistic forms of terror. Well, uh, so, all right, I understand mm -hmm. that. When we was in proper colonial days of mm -hmm. bombing off to India to nick a load of spices and tea and minerals mm -hmm. and whatever... Piracy was the problem. The terrorism related to the dominant economic motif. Mm -hmm. Now, what was that second one of national? The second times? one was nationalism. So, in, in the in the in the period of the twentieth century, then you have you know the emergence of discourses around well, the nation needs to be you know the star point for thinking and end in politics, and you know not without coincidence, you then have you know. Um, anti-national forms of terrorism Who resistance. Who were they then? You could think of the IRA or ah. ETA or all these organisations, you know, right. uh, FARC in Colombia, ah. who follow this ethno-national kind of model, right? So we were, like, so, so we, the, 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 I see myself as an imperial power. <laughs> so imperial, we, me and my mates that set up states. Mm. So the imperial power structures were, were like, there's such a thing as Britain and whether or not you think this is Ireland, mm. it's, it's none of our business. Well, it is our business. We'll kill you. If you do. so, so on one hand, you had the dominant, uh, the the powerful trying to establish nation states, mm -hmm. and in response to that, you mm -hmm. had people saying, "No, this isn't a nation state. We want our own sovereignty." Yeah, and in that sense, you know what what I try to argue is then we can then use the violence 
diagnostically to understand the power. I like right? that idea. So, 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 if, so the, if the violence is like this, the power must be like that. Absolutely, yeah. Right. So, and and my argument is that the best way to understand any political regime is look in, in terms of the relationships of violence that it's engaged in. Now, bring, Why? Well, violence is the surest diagnostic that takes you out of the idealism of politics, right? Poli we, we often talk about politics as ideals, but for me, when we're dealing with imperial projects, you know, for instance, if we take liberalism, Let's not judge liberalism. What is liberalism? Liberalism is like you can do what you want as long as it's within these parameters. Well, yeah, Be gay if you like. Yeah. Well, but, but even then, liberalism has, you know, liberalism changes over time. But for me, liberalism always says, you know, we have a monopoly over these terms, you know, universality, rights, security, justice. But it doesn't. But it claims a monopoly over this. Mm. And can I to give you an example mm. I found very helpful in understanding this issue that's quite complex? In your book, I think you used that quote from Tony Blair <laughs> when the Iraq war was kicking off. He went like, uh, well, this is not a war based on Western values. These are universal values that have existed through time and we've got an obligation to spread freedom. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, Tony Blair's saying, I speak for this mm -hmm. thing that's mm -hmm. called universal values, the values of the universe. So that assumes that everyone has got this value system and he is speaking on behalf of it and mm -hmm. has a mandate to spread it. Is that what you mean by liberalism using terms that are quite amorphous mm -hmm. to to essentially to assert power. Yeah, liberalism plays to this concept of the universal in a way like a religion plays to the concept of the universal. Now, and the universal means we're all basically the same. We're all basically right? the same. We all have the same values. And Tony Blair wrote, you know, a, an article called The Battle for Global Values. And it's very rhetorical. It's all about we have this shared way of life. You know, my way of life and your way of life is fundamentally different, right? What, what this idea of it, you know, and, but he doesn't stipulate one precise point about what this shared universal value system actually looks like. Why doesn't he do that? Because it's impossible. There right? isn't one. There isn't one, right? right. And, and, and this is the point. It's, you know, it, it's a rhetorical device to, basically colonise the world. If mm. we say that everybody should be conformed to this universal idea of what life should conform to, then, of course, you can wage unlimited violence because you have to convert people. No different to the history of religious wars in that sense. So you're establishing almost wordlessly or certainly non-specifically that there's this thing called normal. And, mm -hmm. and if you're not that, we uh, we are justified mm -hmm. in using violence to bring you on side. Mm -hmm. Now, you're saying that the uh, first war in Iraq is a good example of that. Can you see that this, this principle of universalism as expressed through liberalism, liberalism meaning, oh, you're basically free to do as you what you want as an individual, even if that boils down to you can spend what you want, you can live within these economic parameters. Can you see how this principle is relevant to what's happening now? For example, you know, the, the obvious rise of Trump and Brexit. Mm -hmm. Take one of them and talk us through it, how it pertains to this issue. Yeah, well, on the one hand, you know, it, it's very clear that... Um, the liberal wars from the wars on terror have been... They were, they were physically disastrous for the, the sheer number of casualties that they produced. They were also intellectually catastrophic in so much as... There's the, 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 the idea that liberalism can actually transform the world for the better is kind of waning, especially amongst, you know, there's no appetite for people in the UK or America, for instance, to go on overseas expeditions anymore, quite rightly so. Also, what do you mean? Well, in the sense of, you know, the, the mobilisation for war in the way in which the wars on terror originally took place. Mm. There was a great, you know, whilst the, there was a great deal of protest and people became disillusioned because, you, you know, hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets, nothing actually changes in terms of the political process. But gradually, I think people have understood the wars have actually been, you know, catastrophic politically. Now, how does this connect into the contemporary period? Well, first of all, we have now one of the outcomes of these wars on terror is the current refugee crisis we encountered today. We cannot divorce that, I don't think, from the wars you on terror. You think that there's a relationship between the wars on terror 
and the migrant crisis. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, if, and if, you know, if we connect the, the contemporary, you know, refugee crisis on the one hand and to the wars on terror, then there's a much broader genealogy that we can, you know, connect. The How con- are they connected? How is, like, <laughs> a, like them big dinghies full of migrants, like, crossing over from Libya or mm-hmm. the jungle, Calais? How And, you know, of course, the concerns in Britain about uh, mm-hmm. migrants... Mm-hmm. How, how does that specifically relate to mm-hmm. terror well, and our know, war against terror? Well, I think you know often the the focus is on um, on Syria and you know the Syrian refugees, but as we know that you know there's a much broader fabric from where these people are coming from. Now, Libya is the obvious example. Libya was you know another one of our adventures, but Libya actually signaled a dif- you know a, a difference. Whereas we didn't put people on the ground, we just basically you know destroyed the regime from a distance, right? And and basically left just a vacuum there. And so as a result, you have this condition of, you know, really precarious people who are denied the most fundamental political right, and that is the right to flee. That has always been, you know, particularly since World War II, the most fundamental political right people have had is the right to flee conflict. Now, as the poet Wasan Shire says, nobody puts their children in a dinghy unless the water is safer than the land, mm. right? So we're in, in that situation. And the tragedy is then, you know, these people who are fleeing these intolerable conditions are politicised and wagered against vulnerable populations back home, the precarious workers. So we have two groups of completely vulnerable populations. Do you mean like indigenous British yeah, the indigenous precarious for, workers? Yeah, the, the, the British precarious workers working, for instance, in South Wales, where I grew up. You know, you have these, you know, impoverished communities who are taught through the media and through the likes of, you know, Nigel Farage to fear the, these people who are, you know, deeply vulnerable. So it's kind of like the vulnerable against the precarious who are kind of waged against one the another. The crap boxing match. Yeah. In the red corner, it's the vulnerable. <laughs> and in the blue corner, it's the precarious. It's fight night, 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 night. 17 pounds 50, the vulnerable. Oh, please help me. The precarious. I don't know where to go. Finally, they're up against each other. So, like, so that, I said, I understand what you're saying. You're dem- uh, what you've demonstrated there is that's a story we're being told. We're being told the, a particular story of your jobs are under threat because of these migrants, mm-hmm. even though another way of looking at uh, the, the migrants would be from that poet's perspective of mm-hmm. you don't, you know, a human beings are not going to stick their kids in a dinghy unless the water's safer than the land. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose the reason that we're not told that story is because it challenges another story. Now, whose story is that? Whose Mm -hmm. story is Mm -hmm. the dominant story and how do they get to Mm -hmm. maintain it? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things we need to kind of ask ourselves, and it's another, you know, the question is, what is it about, again, the current moment where you have this raft of extremely wealthy people asking people to basically embrace their own containment, right? Because that's what's really happening in the UK, right? People are basically being asked to vote to be stuck on this island with the likes of, you know, a whole number of people we shouldn't even give, you know, credence to in terms of naming, right? Now, we have this then, but how does this happen? Well, you get people to desire it themselves. This is this is how, you know, fascistic regimes have always operated historically, is you get people to desire the conditions they should find patently intolerable. Do you mean economic elitism. Absolutely, but it's economics and the political can't be divorced, right? So the economic and the political is part of the same project. And this, to me, has to be also reconciled with the changing nature of global capitalism. The change, global capitalism today doesn't require 60 to 70% of the world's population. It's, you know, oh, a large part that's of... That's a problem. You know, 67% of the world's population have just become defunct. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the stasis is maintained by saying you should desire 
wealth. There's mm -hmm. this thing, look, you know, mm -hmm. so like when we're bombarded with imagery of wealth and opulence and people consuming and glamour, mm -hmm. there's a reason for that, and that is to make us perpetually crave those conditions mm -hmm. instead of going, that's a bit bloody extreme and off-key. Mm -hmm. So that's there's multiple ways of looking at, you know, a, a inverted commas, desirable lifestyle. One is desirable as stated, and another way, as you've suggested, mm -hmm. is repugnant. Mm -hmm. Now, like, so, like, but people won't... Why don't that idea get challenged more? Well, that, it's... Part of the difficulty is how do we, you know, build a broader momentum of people who are able to critique this. Now, if you're, you know, working in a precarious job, you're working from 8 in the morning till 9pm at night, you have two kids at home you have to feed, you come home, you don't have time to read critical theory, right? You don't have time to, you know, the last thing you want to do is switch the TV on, Kind of, you know, because the working conditions for the vast majority of the population, and this is a whole historical problem, you know, when people used to talk about reading Karl Marx and becoming a Marxist revolutionary, you needed to be wealthy middle class before you had time to sit down and read Das Kapital, right? Mm. You know, so, and part of the issues then is that people are working in such, you know, precarious environments today, they can just basically turn on the news and be filtered a particular message which is comforting to them. And this is, you know, why you perhaps you can see there's a certain appeal to certain, you know, the alt-right movement that... They speak in a message which is very clear, which is reassuring, which which actually, for the first time, you know, in a long time, you have politicians saying, we are no longer great anymore, right? But we can give you security. We can make you feel great again. We can... It's like, you know, it's what um, the late Zygmunt Bauman called retrotopia, right? It's like as if we can somehow just turn the clock back and as if everything was so great for, you know, the working-class populations 50 years ago, because it basically wasn't. But this is another illusion that we're sold. Do you think that a, a, a social nostalgia can tap into a kind of personal nostalgia? That because mm -hmm. people remember their own youths of just as a time when things were a bit better because I didn't have arthritis, mm -hmm. they would imagine that there was a sort of a political and social golden age that was concurrent with that, even though it may never have happened. Yeah, it's, it's a pure fabrication, right? And, and you know, this... Um... Donald Trump's the obvious example. When he when he when he was speaking, you know, giving talk about you know increasing defense spending, he was saying, you know, America used to win wars, but we no longer do. And it, and it's kind of like this nostalgic moment. And he kind of forgot about Vietnam, right? It's kind of you know, well, you know, America have lost a lot of wars, you know. And he and he's talking about this, you know, this golden age of American politics, and you know, the the right to do it in America in the UK as well. This golden age of British politics, and you know, it's easy to be nostalgic because you know. From our own lives, as you say, when we look back to our childhood, we kind of remember the good stuff, right? We can kind of blank out the, the you know, the negative stuff. And but it's also easy to sell to people if yeah. if we're living in a world of you know deep insecurities, deep vulnerabilities, the sense that a day to, on a day-to-day -day basis we live in an age of what I've called terror normality. There's this constant anxieties around the day-to-day -day conditions. Well, of course, being great again sounds great, right? mm. you know. And and there is a there's a clear. It's easy to, to con people into believing things that they sort of want to believe that mm. things used to be better and we could get things better again. That's mm -hmm. a sort of easier thing to believe than look. This is really complex. We're going to have mm. to unravel a load of stuff. Um, you said a thing that I imagine might be important. Uh, Sixty to seventy percent of the world's population have mm -hmm. become sort of redundant as a result of global capitalism. Mm. Why? Because of mechanisation and technology, mm -hmm. we've just got loads of people that we don't need anymore. Mm -hmm. So unless that becomes highly explicit, then that's going to be a kind of an invisible bargaining chip that's mm -hmm. continually concealed. Mm -hmm. Oh, bloody hell, we've got all these people that would frankly be better off if they were dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, part of it in... in
in the liberal states in the West, there has been this shift towards digitalized economies. There's the farming out of production to places such as China, but large parts of sub-Saharan Africa are, are, are effectively disposable. They're, they're, you know, they're, these populations have no value to us. But of course, we can't leave them to their own devices. So how do you deal with them? Well, you have to contain them. You have to basically prevent them from, you know, trying to achieve the very lifestyles that we've been selling to them over the mm -hmm. last 20 years. Now, f but also from, if we look at then in terms of, you know, how we are living our lives now, it's no longer the case that politicians are simply saying, well, you know, you can have everything, right? We're living in this age of austerity. Austerity looks like something that's going to be permanent. It's a case of just simply hold on to what you have. Mm. And in that sense, when you know, when you have this, you know, this perpetuation of this narrative that your way of life is constantly under siege, of course it plays directly to a politics of fear, a politics of manipulation, where, where people quite rightly, you know, can say, well, actually, you know, I want to just protect my family. I've got no... Yeah, no idea what sovereignty means. I got no idea what these grand political theories mean. I just want to do what's right for my kids. Yeah. And I'm constantly fed on a daily basis these news stories around these, you know, these vulnerable people are going to come over, take my jobs. They might become terroristic and so on. Oh. And it has an appeal within the population because of the unethical nature of the way the message is sold to them in the first place. Brad, do you think in the upper echelons of the political and economic world, people have conversations that are as plain as that go, right, look, see that old sub-Saharan Africa, that's useless, right, we're going to have mm -hmm. to accept that. Do you think there are people that speak that in that language when they're talking about mobilising money across the globe, mm -hmm. uh, when they're dealing with resources at a geopolitical level, mm -hmm. that the conversation includes things like, right, well, sub-Saharan Africa is bloody useless then. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, that, that are they, or, or are those kind of things just sort of implied... Well, I think that there has to be, you know, first of all, we have to hold people culpable and responsible for their actions. And whether it's intended or not, the ways in which certain elites are operating in the field of global capitalism is having disastrous consequences for people on the planet. So in that sense, you know, there are clear strategic actions which are made which have clear, you know, detrimental outcomes on on vast populations. You mean what, like a, a, a tra the level of global trade and the, the energy resources? Gl absolutely, global trade develop, and also, you know, the ways in which entire populations can be left out of the forces of globalization because they have no strategic value or no p purpose. Mm. And in that sense, the, the, one of the questions we need to ask then is, you know, well, where is the ethics? Where is the ethical obligation? Now, some people will say, well, this is just business, right? mm. but as we all know historically, business has always been political. You know, if you want to understand the politics, follow the money. And and in that sense, I think we have to kind of, first of all, acknowledge that the reason why people are living in, you know, destitute, horrifying conditions is not by accident. It's the result of long-drawn historical processes of exploitation, you know, there's enough money in the world to feed everybody. There's yeah, a, you know, there's enough resources. That's an interesting <laughs> thing to return to. All right, Brad, let's take it onto a bit of a personal level for a moment because what we've done is we've lurched into intense academic discourse of a global level and I've not discussed for a moment that lovely scarf. Now, Brad, <laughs> let me just describe you because this is primarily an, an audible uh, medium. What are you, in your 40s? Yes, 42. You're 42, so you're a year older than me and you're quite a lot cleverer. That's a bit annoying. And you're well-dressed. You're wearing an All Saints sweater. You're wearing a very beautiful scarf. And there's a, your suit has got quite a nice detail to it, sort of a, sort of a shiny stitch throughout it. And you go, when you arrived, you gave me a couple of gifts. You gave me a copy of your book, Disposable Futures, which I'm well into, I'm well into reading. Is this easy to read? Am I going to be able to understand this? Yes, yep. And then, then there's, uh, and then yes, yep. And then, <laughs> and then there's Lewis Carroll, the complete uh, Alice in Wonderland tales from my lovely daughter Mabel. Was a gift from your daughter. What's your mm. daughter's name? Amelie. From Amelie. How old is Amelie? She's eight. 
you've got an eight-year-old daughter, so he's had kids earlier than me as well. It's not a competition. I don't know why I'm turning this podcast into a competition of guests. Um, thank you very much for these gifts. So uh, how do you, um, like, you've got to live in the world. You're working, you're a, what are you, an academic? That means you're, like, you're writing books and you're lecturing people at Bristol University. How do you, how does this knowledge and information you've got sort of, you know, how is it practicable and useful in your life? I, I, first of all, I, I think I'm always, you know, when I look at my job, it's it actually never feels like a job. It's always a remarkable privilege, actually. And and I first of all, I think it's it's a privilege how I got here because I grew up in the Welsh mining valleys and I never had, you know, I was the first time my family to go to university. I never, ever anticipated that this was a, even a possibility, university, let alone becoming a lecturer. How did it happen? By chance, by luck, by, I don't know. You just by sheer chance yeah. become an academic? Well, by, by a whole series of different events where, you know, you do different jobs and you work out in life what you don't want to do. And then, you know, I, I was in uh, Mexico for a while and um, got caught up in, a, you know, um, interested in a revolution there. And I Got did... caught up in a Mexican revolution? <laughs> you can't just throw that away. Oh, I was in a mining village, then I got caught up in a Mexican revolution. Here's a copy of Alice in Wonderland. I need some details <laughs> yeah. of how you got caught up in a... Well, well, you know, there was. I became interested in politics, and then I went to Mexico round about '98, and there was um, just travelling. And there was a group called the Zapatistas who mm. orchestrated an uprising. I became completely fascinated by them. Them's uh, es mejor vivir. What's that thing? Es, es mejor morir a pie que vivir arrodillados. It's better to die on your feet than live on your knees. Yeah, that's, that's Emiliano Zapata was the first. Yeah, so their indigenous uh, group, were, which were at war with the Mexican government. Now, the reason I became fascinated with them was their shift to non-violence as a political strategy, which is remarkably unique for the history of Latin America. Mm. Um, I then subsequently went back to university, did a master's degree, and then did a PhD, which I spent quite a bit of time in Mexico, look, spending time with this group, interviewing them. And they're indigenous Maya people. And I was fascinated by their shift, as I say, to politics as a political strategy. When I came back to the UK, I was then um, based in Leeds and the 7-7 bombings happened. And, you know, I was living in the Burley Park area of Leeds, which was very close to one of the mosques where a couple of the 7-7 bombers kind of uh, were, were attending. And I guess I just didn't buy into this narrative that these people simply hated us for who we are. And, and I just became more... You know, and one of the problems is once you start studying violence, you, I became more and more fascinated with violence. Now, going back to the, the question, then, that, that was kind of the... You know, the political sh- violence. Yeah, but you know, but what is political violence in itself is, is a big question, you know, because we can talk about political violence as soldiers dying on a battlefield, right? But there's certainly a politics to any form of violence, you know. Domestic- what, smacking a mouth on a Friday? Well, it, it can be if you're, if you're living in, you know... Um, deeply impoverished in violence. There can be structural conditions which give rise to violence. You know, might we not think, for instance, of domestic abuse as a form of violence, as a political violence? If How? It, if it becomes part of the normal cultural accepted fabric of everyday societies, or we can talk about homelessness as a form of violence, right? Right, it's the violation of it, the right to have a house. Yeah, and, and, and what is violence if it's not a violation, right? So it is the violation, and... and and I think that that's where I kind of... So what, to, to understand violence, you've got to understand what it is that's being violated, and that is to assume that there is something that is sacred and that we're all entitled to. Is yeah. that right? Sanctified. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what also... that? We're entitled to mm-hmm. peace mm-hmm. and to basic, decent conditions. Well, to human dignity, right? And, and I think the counter to violence is dignity. And what, one of the things we do a great you know, disservice to ourselves if we simply associate violence with actual bodily harm. A great deal of violence can be intellectual or setting the conditions through which people become disposable. Why do you think that human beings are entitled to dignity? Um, because it's something which I'd like myself. It's something which I would like to see my daughter achieve. 
And I think if you have that ethical sense of love for one another, then dignity to me is wrapped up with something what we might call love. Now, it, you know, we, we often taught, for instance, in terms of politics, that politics begins with questions of security and security is about protection. To me, the question of security is completely meaningless unless there was a prior love. We have mm. a love for one another. Why else do you want to protect your family or a community if there's not some love before the security? Let's protect this miserable hell we're oh, in. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. We might as well just become all nihilists, right, and just let it go or let it rot. So, so in that sense, there has to be this original conception. Now, and linking it back to then, you know, what does it mean to be an academic? I, on the one hand, you know, I try to write for academic audiences and I try to engage on that, that level. But also, I think as an academic, you know, especially in the, the, um, the current conditions in which we face... We have an obligation to try to reach out to different audiences with different language, different styles, which is why, you know, I've done some writing with the New York Times. I've done, um, I'm doing a new column, actually, with the Los Angeles Review of Books, which interviews artists and film directors around how they mm. understand violence. Um, I actually recently also put together a, um, a comic book, which is basically introducing the ideas of Foucault and Fanon to a 15, 16-year-old-based audience. Thank God, you finally found my level. <laughs> if you, when you start writing them for two-year-olds, I might understand what the hell they're on about. Yeah. Now, hold on, you said like a minute ago that I'm very, I want to know a little bit more about, uh, you know, when we talk about this sort of concept of human dignity and that there's something for us to protect, this is a kind of discourse that has been largely removed from the discussion around politics at the moment. Like, sort of, when you think about, like, the rise of Trump... And sort of Brexit, like, and I like I don't have a strong view on leave remain to tell you the absolute truth because like, mm -hmm. I think the people, a lot of people that voted leave, they like it's kind of comparable to what you just said about dignity, like uh, like we go, oh don't leave Europe, Europe's brilliant, we're in Europe now, where the fuck is all this brilliant you keep telling me about, mm -hmm. like you know they, they press the fuck you button I think mm -hmm. or like you know that thing on the elevator that I always want to press every time I go past it or in a lift and you think I could just press it, mm -hmm. I think maybe it was a little like that now, but. This, that these ideas of love and compassion, Brad, you're obviously like a highly educated and brilliant intellectual, but like it, when, it seems like when we drill down, we get to human beings love one another and there is this thing called love that needs to be preserved that is being excluded. Now, that, that's not present in contemporary rhetoric. In fact, its opposite is present. No one is talking about... We better bloody love these people. Well, quick, mm. how can we love more people? We're, we're, we're approaching the political conversation from an angry, selfish, mm. you know, if not, not nihilistic, because I suppose there is purpose, but it's a very kind of ugly and, as I suppose you would say, violent perspective. Mm -hmm. how is, where is this compassion gone? Mm -hmm. How has it got excluded? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that this is something, again, which doesn't happen overnight. And there's, you know... We can go back historically, and there's always kind of two visions of the political. One we might call, you know, a poetic vision, right? And the poetic vision is based on this idea of love, compassion, decency. All those things, actually, which don't fit into the neat scientific model around let's all be reasonable, let's all be rational, because this is the vision of the world, and the vision of the world is dangerous and catastrophic. And, you know, because as we all know, whenever you fall in love, it's completely irrational. But it's no less real. And... We're often taught that politics is all about survival. You know, the, the whole, you walk into the Natural History Museum, the whole history, the, the narrative we're told about, you know, two men in a cave rubbing sticks together and they come, you know, they, suddenly we have fire and then we have to go out and survive and we have to fight the elements and, you know, and this is the narrative we're constantly sold about. Survival, struggle. Yeah. We're told to look at things from the perspective of yeah. struggle and, and you're also talking about the rationalism there. Mm -hmm. Well, that's stuff that you can measure, prove and go, right, this is, we've got to approach the world in this way. We've got mm -hmm. to survive, ergo, 
therefore rational. We've got to be rational. But you're saying that one of the, the, the perhaps the dominant defining and essential force in all of our lives is love, which doesn't conform to... It doesn't conform that. to these orthodox rational models and this reduction of politics to the question of pure survival. And if you reduce politics to the question of survival, then somebody needs to protect you. you know? So, and this gives rise to hierarchies of power, which is it has done historically and also does contemporaneously. And of course, people in power know there's no better way to mobilise the population than to get them to be fearful. And yeah, I'm more mobile when I'm fearful. I'll do whatever you want. You get me scared enough. Yeah, and, and, and that, you know, that changes people's entire subjectivities. If you're scared to go on a train in the morning, it changes your behaviour. This is a performance. This is your this is your way of life. It's not just simply something about being fearful. It's about how you live your life. Do you have any actual belief that love would make a difference at the political level? If like some like if you were to on in that political conversation, we say we got to stop all this madness and hatred and loathing. We can love each other. What the hell's going on? Do you think people would listen to that? Or someone say, "Sit down, you're a hysterical fool." <laughs> well, it's yeah, you know, but it's actually it's often you know written. Yeah, it's been written out of politics for, for a long time that this idea that we might be able to think politics differently mm. and we might be able to start from new parameters. Now, it's often called, you know, flaky or idealistic. But to me, it's it's very real. It, it, it's at the heart of how we understand political communities. But my other... I guess I would come at this, you know, we've given war too much of a chance for for so long. Why not give it a try? Yeah. What, what, what do we have to lose? Particularly in the current political moment where, you know, we live in this age which myself and Henry Giroux um, in the book call, call dystopian realism. We live in an age where dystopia is the norm. That means where, messed up, horrible, grim vision. Grim vision. The only way we can imagine the future is now catastrophic. Yeah, like all them films we see, yeah. like where everyone's just bowling along in some terrible, mm -hmm. dusty wasteland yeah. uh, using a KFC wipe as a treasured item. That is a particular film. We didn't just make that up. It's that Denzel Washington one. Yeah, and the, the way we kind of imagine the world now is, is this complete future of catastrophe. And this, again, connects to the politics of time. Right? The, how, you know, why, how have we got ourselves into a situation where the future just looks so bleak? And, 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 and this is not just part of an imagination. The future is very bleak for a lot of young people who, you know, right across Europe, and this comes back to your point about Brexit, you know, the part of the issue for Brexit was it seemed to be a middle-class problem. If you're, you know, working-class unemployed in South Wales or you're in Portugal and you're a young child and you're part of the mass army of unemployed there, there's no risk for you. Mm. It wasn't a risk to vote to leave because you were yeah. already on your knees. Yeah, that's right. So, so, so in that sense, that you know, that we we need to understand this as a social phenomenon, not just simply get boiled up into the hyperbole rhetoric. Yeah, I like that because the thing that I kept thinking about Trump is Trump is not just Trump. It didn't wasn't like everything was great and then Trump. Like it was like no, all this shit happened and then Trump. Like mm -hmm. and, and like and part of what preceded Trump was eight years of Barack Obama and a sort of like a, a favourable and appealing version of something that's not that distinct. In fact, I've sort of just... One of the things I've been thinking about Trump, I don't know if this is incredibly um, naive, is that tr Trump is just a grotesque version of what's happening anyway. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a sort of a, sort of a concealed, submerged narrative has become prevalent and mm -hmm. revealed, mm -hmm. like this gargoyle is mm -hmm. now in charge. But that idea was always present, the mm -hmm. idea of immigrants are dispensable, we have the right to aggressively and violently pursue our agenda mm -hmm. around the world. Those things have just been said out loud now mm -hmm. instead of just discreetly done while sort of nice smiling people are in charge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's all too easy just to focus on one singular authoritarian personality mm. and without actually understanding the social phenomenon which gives rise to these particular leaders. But as you say, the ways in which 
Trump doesn't make a radical break with the past. Now, he's dangerous and his thoughts are dangerous, but it's not necessarily a radical break with the past. It's actually more of an acceleration of a lot of dynamics which have been maturing for oh. some considerable time. We have this, you know... It's an acceleration. Yeah, and it's, and it's a bringing to the fore of, you know, this... We all know capitalism has always been hyper-masculine, and he's kind of pushing this in a really aggressive way. To talk of, you know, America as, you know, being a post-racial society, we all know is complete nonsense. Right. And the racial tensions which were existing in America, particularly during the Obama regime... It was in a terrible well, state, wasn't it? I couldn't, you couldn't get... The stories were left and right, weren't they? Mm. Like, oh, now another kid's been beaten up and shot, and yeah. then another riot, so, another town. It was just going out <laughs> of control. And that's one of the things that made me think that there's no clear relationship between uh, the stated authority and the political everyday reality of a population because I thought like Barack Obama I'm looking at him he's a black bloke he seems lovely this stuff's happening to African-American people why is that not being stopped if there is an integral relationship between these power structures and the everyday reality of the population mm -hmm. it made me feel that there's a disjunct no there is a complete disjunct and there's also you know we live in an age where politics is effectively reduced to media spectacle and and in that sense, the spectacle works like a bright, shiny light, right? It's like, you know, look over here and forget what's going on under the ground and under the surface. And in that sense, we can always kind of fabricate, you know, a different reality, which is why in politics today, it's so difficult to separate the, the fictional from the real. You know, where where is the reality? Where is the truth of the situation? How can we actually, you know, and this is why, to me, you know, what you're doing actually is, you know, is really important because... We require alternative sources through which different narratives and discussions can be exposed, can gain circulation. And in the one hand, this is about, you know, revealing some of, you know, the more difficult and challenging questions that society face, but also to say, well, actually, a different conversation is possible. What is the role of the media in uh, expounding dominant narratives and excluding less popular and challenging narratives? Why are they so invested and embedded in having those narratives perpetuated and how, why is it so difficult to like we, when I was like doing that truth and I was in a very ad hoc way it was only a few of us and like like we were just sort of going right this don't seem right and like you know I didn't, didn't even know as much as I now know now and as you can see it, it still isn't very much but like it was just I was running on an intuitive sense this is bullshit why are we being told so much bullshit? That was like sort of the main thing and pointing out where they were, where it seemed humorous to me. But eventually, the more we got into it, eventually we found ourselves confronted with, if not actual literal threat, some threats and a very and a sort of sense of fear. Like, uh oh, this is and I felt sort of personally exhausted and a bit scared at mm -hmm. certain points about where it was going and certainly that I wasn't correctly tooled up. Why is it as simple as the media, are, you know, sort of most media organisations conform exactly to the kind of, uh, they require the economic conditions to remain static. Mm -hmm. Is that why it is? Is it as simple as that? Well, yeah, if, if we link this back to this, this contemporary debate around fake news, right? And there's this kind of narrative which all sides are now peddling. Everybody's accusing one another of fake news. The first thing we just need to, you know, if we just read basically Michel Foucault, one of the key lessons... Don't which... say basically <laughs> Michel Foucault on a podcast. Yeah. But the, the simple message of this, this is... This is your basic Michel Foucault. <laughs> but, but the straightforward message... What do you message, bloody mean by that? The straightforward message is all language is wrapped up with power. All discourse has a meaning, it has an agenda. You better give me some examples yeah. of how all languages wrapped up in power, please, Brad, so as I understand it. Use the word terror. Right. right. Terror 
we can all give different definitions of what we think terror means. Terror is only important for us by the people who utter the term so they can do things, right? So all terms, all language have a meaning in terms of their application. Mm -hmm. So now in that sense, you know, all media outlets, whether whatever we're working with, have a certain agenda. And in that sense, even I admit when I write, you know, you're writing from a very particular normative position. You, I, you know... You, this idea that you can objectively write, you know, we, we all bring our own thoughts to bear on a project. Now, when we're talking about the mass media, of course, they are talking, you know, they are representative of a very particular constituency. And in that sense... What is that constituency? The constituency varies in terms... I, I don't want to kind of homogenise the media, but there, there is a, a certain, you know, sense of the, the, the mass media which are beholden to stakeholders, to various funding bodies. Mm. And in that sense, whilst they can appear critical... The types of questions they raise mm. are kind of caught within a particular parameter. And I was actually struck when um, I saw you um, when you was on Question Time. And there was this engagement when you, you, you were on Question Time. And the way in which any time you would slightly veer towards a radical position, Dimbleby would stop you, right? There was this moment where actually you cannot become too radical in... So there's a kind of a limit and a parameter around... And I could see what your body on, on that programme, you just became exhausted by the process. Like, well, if you're not going to allow me to raise this type of question, if you're actually going to dictate the terms of the conversation, then I'm already excluded from this. Yes, yeah. I suppose that is something that I felt, that the conversation only takes place within very narrow parameters, so it's not a conversation that's worth having. Like, so, like, and when we were earlier on, when talking about, you know, like how obviously what has been a huge catalyst in your own development was a personal experience of revolution mm -hmm. in Central America and their commitment to non-violence... Uh, that there is obviously an emotional impact on you as a human mm -hmm. being. Now, like what you're saying there about types of language and the way that language is prohibitive and, and used to exert power is, I think, demonstrable in the fact that when you use love, community, connection, that is immediately labelled as you... That's airy-fairy, hippie bullshit that's not allowed in this grown-up conversation about economics and power. You mm. best clear off. Mm -hmm. Now, like, I, actually, this is a really good thing, which obviously you'll know. Like, I read this David Foster Wallace essay where he talks about how he has to teach African-American students and he says, like, you don't know this, but you speak a dialect called African-American and academic language is written in a thing called standard written American or standard mm -hmm. written English. He goes, but it might as well be called standard white English. And you might think that's wrong, that you're being marked down because you're not speaking mm -hmm. a dialect that you didn't grow up with and you may one day want to make the argument that how that's unfair. But when you do make that argument, you better mm -hmm. make it in standard written English because otherwise no one's going to listen to you. So you do have to learn the language of power prior to engaging in that conversation. And when you talk about sort of big ideas that are excluded, when I felt like things got really challenging was when I started to say, if you're really interested in protesting, don't pay your mortgage, don't pay tax, insist on massive decentralisation and the destable and the uh, diminution of state power, the like the sort of localised power wherever possible. Mm -hmm. Like it, they, the sort of like because people do sort of the one of the things that was the other things that was challenging is people said, well, what are you going to do differently? What are you going to do different? Mm -hmm. I sense that you like feel that like non-violence is an important component in any change, and mm -hmm. that, that's sort of becoming obvious to me on a personal level, and. I mean, the, but what is it that we are aiming for? Is decentralisation and the uh, immobilisation of some of these great forces, these political and economic forces, which you've said are inextricably linked, uh, inseparable, in fact, uh, 
what is it that do, is there an obligation to propose some kind of alternative? Because I remember a certain Mr. Hitler saying, like, like in like I watched these uh, documentaries, um, the Nazis are warning from history, um, bloody good stuff actually, and like um. I'm not uh, endorsing the Nazis. I like, obviously. I like, um, but there's like sort of loads of bits of like Hitler doing speeches. And he's like, look, I don't know what we're going to do, but it'll be better than this crap that's going on at the moment in his inimitable Hitler style. Uh, like, so, well, and you know, obviously he was swept to power on sheer bloody enthusiasm, passion, and uh, massively discontent and economically uh, uh, underprivileged and deprived population. But like, like, what is this? obligation to provide an alternative how do you do it how do you start to get these ideas included how do you get these stories told without being told it's airy fairy rubbish not thought through six form and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. well i think the first thing we need to do is the question is do we have an obligation and my point would be yes um because if we don't have this sense the one you know the one realization we need to have is we live on a small planet and we all have to live on this planet together now if we don't have a you know a care for the other then we end up with the politics of fear and the politics of hatred, which to me is toxic and actually demeans us as humans. So that would be my ethical start point. Now, so we do have an ob right. So start. We start from the position of we have this obligation. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's that's the start point. The second point then is also to realise that you know you don't need academics or you don't need anybody to basically tell people to resist what they find patently intolerable. People do that. And that, to me, is, is actually a remarkable faith in the human condition. People will constantly resist intolerable conditions because they are affirming the human in themselves. And I think that is also a good start point that we can... So there's something in us that's like, oh, we're not having that. Absolutely. What's a good example of it? Poll tax riots. History's littered with examples of people who... Suffrage. Yeah, from... But civil he, rights in the America. Civil rights in America. Like, people know, just thought, hang on a minute, this ain't right. The, the Black Lives Matter movement in America today. Right. You know, there's this, this kind of sense of, actually, no, we're, you know, you are basically trampling on my dignity. I am basically going to affirm who I am as a person. I'm not going to... What is that? It's multiple, you know, people... That's been described typically by religion, is it? I don't want to go off on a big tangent about yeah. the nature of God and mm -hmm. the central self, but, like, primary, but previously, historically, mm -hmm. this impulse has been termed mm. within sort of the religious yeah. realm, that there is something essential mm. and beautiful about us that's yeah. worthy of preserving. Well, well, you know, I think there is something about the human condition which has this desire for creativity, this desire for imagination, this desire for freedom. Now, one of the things we can say is, you know, the, the, the danger is if we start to wrap this up as a universal, right? But is there a faith to this? Absolutely. You know, um, a good friend of mine and colleague, Simon Critchley, talks about this as, that you know, drawn from Oscar Wilde, the faith of the faithless, right? Where people have this inner personal faith, which gives rise to a concept of love, which is can be maybe a universal thing, I'm not sure. But it certainly seems to be an integral part of the human condition, that we have this desire to be free, this desire to love one another, the desire for at least ourselves to have a certain sense of dignity. Now, where does that lead us in terms of contemporary politics? The one thing I would say is that there are no 20th century solutions to 21st century problems. We're, you know, And this kind of attempt to turn the clock back. This in itself is a complete illusion. You know, you, you, talk, you look at the, you know, what's happening again in America and the UK, for all this talk of sovereignty and reclaiming sovereignty and whatever, there's not one piece of legislation which is saying, let's rein in the power of global capitalism. Right. Yeah. It's all about giving people the illusion of sovereignty such that they start to think about these small little token gestures that they can gain from national politics, whereas actually what we need is an entirely new, different political imagination. Now, mm. where does that come from? Well, it's certainly not going to come from any singular white male academic. Right. 
It needs to come from a much broader intellectual conversation from people from very different cultural backgrounds who have a very clear ethical respect for one another. And that requires a cross-religious you know, cross conversation, a much broader cultural conversation around where do we go in the 21st century such that it doesn't look so catastrophic. If liberalism has given us anything, and I'm sure it has, it's certainly the idea that people's individual values are distinctive and are um, nominally, if not practically, worthy of respect. So doesn't that point to the ultimate... Mm, futility of trying to have broad governance, like at the level of a nation state or mm -hmm. globalisation, mm -hmm. if people are so different and people's requirements are so distinct and different, isn't a big part of the problem that we're trying to deal with huge swathes of the population. And you mentioned earlier that 70% of people are, you know, sort of like uh, economically null and void. We've got machines to do your job now. You're just a, a drain on global resources. That for those people to be represented, it's going to take more, isn't it, Brad, than the bloody Red Cross and a couple of telephones. It's going to take a huge uh, dissolution of power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's going to require a, a fundamental, you know, rethinking of what we understand power and politics to mean. And and you know, tragically, it often seems that these kinds of major ch changes in how we see and relate to the world come after a major crisis. Yeah, that's right. That's normally what happens, right? It yeah. Millions of people die and then we go, sorry about that, we better rejig. Yeah. yeah, but then often what happens after these major crises is we very quickly go back into everything changes so everything can remain the same again, right? And mm. we re, re, you know, and often we rewrite then, you know, what should be on trial for these things end up, ends up becoming the solution. Now, you're right in terms of, you know, there's some wonderful work. What's some, yeah, some good, sorry, I remember your point, but some examples of that is like you know the solution to terrorism seems to be doing more of the things that cause terrorism like mm -hmm. bombing remote parts of the world that don't seem to be intrinsically involved in terror you know, like mm -hmm. so that's it, more of that is the yeah. solution to terrorism yeah and, and, and this is part of our you know our, our normal response to major crises often seems to be violence right why is that so programmed into yeah. our ways of thinking you know we have this crisis which seems to be born of violence so we will respond to it through a particular concept of justice which looks violent. Right? Yeah. And then we kind of wonder why people become violent back in return, you know. Mm. And we all know violence is cyclical and it has this process. So so in that sense, I think what we need to kind of... Is it because it's the ultimate exertion of will? Like with rationalism and violence, there's this integral relationship. You go, right, look, this is definitely what should be happening. You're not going to agree with it. So we're going to just have to force you. That mm -hmm. sort of seems to be the route towards yeah. violence. Well, there, there is a violence is part of the will to power and the will to power as understood in a very particular way. And a will to power which is, to me, often aligned with the will to power over people. Mm. And if you want to govern people, you want to control them, history teaches us, the history of colonisation teaches us that in order to govern a population, you need to be violent in order to bring them into your universe. Right? Right. And, and now, now, back to your point about governance, you know, how do we deal with this? As you say, on the one hand, we face, you know, in the 21st century, problems which are global by definition. But one of the dangers is we just simply create a, a mega structure of politics, which is basically the same vision that we have today, which is elevated globally. Mm. The other danger is we just simply retreat, retreat back into 20th century modes of thinking, which is what seems to be happening right across continental Europe and America. So, carrying on would be, let's have some more of this capitalism, but an even bigger capitalism. We've got mm. one global market now. It will sort it out. The markets will regulate themselves. Wealth will trickle down. Like, you know, that idea being put. And then the other idea is a kind of revisionist, like a nation-state idea of like, look, bloody hell, it was better when we were England and that, that was America and that, that, so people returned 
return to that. That's a sort of a slightly outmoded idea. Mm -hmm. And both of which are two regimes of violence, right? So both of them have their particular violence. Both of them are intimately still linked with capitalism. Both of them are still intimately linked with this idea that politics begins from this insecurity, you know, this question of insecurity, that humans are all about survival. Right. And I think what we kind of need is a paradigm shift in terms of local people dealing with local problems. You know, local people don't need to be told that they live in an insecure conditions. And, you know, often people will actually take care of their own communities. People will rise up collectively and try to do this. The problem we face is how can we take all these local collective you know, initiatives and translate it into a broader political imagination, which doesn't seek to universalise everybody, but actually gives ethical priority to differences. Oh, I see. So what, you'd need some sort of confederacy of small communities, like, right, them lot over there, they live, they live in this way, those people live in this way, and we don't try and mess with their deal. They, they, we accept that other people yeah. are different and have different agendas, different religious beliefs, mm -hmm. different sexual requirements, and as long as they don't mess with us, mm -hmm. we leave them alone. Is that what it comes down well, to? to a point, but it, it also doesn't mean to say that you cannot, you know, because often when you, you say this position, people will say, well, you're just being culturally relativist, right? And... I'm always getting that. Yeah. On I, the way in. <laughs> culturally relativist, you're being. I said, listen, I won't have that. I'm yeah. on the way to talk to Brad and, Evans. Yeah. So and, what does that mean, culturally well, relativist? Well, well, the, the, or the, we don't understand Muslims. Yeah, we don't understand that. Or we're willing to accept, you know, for instance, the you know, the abuse of women in certain societies because, you know, and part well, of. So we do have an obligation to go stop abusing women or, well, or whatever. Uh, well, absolutely, because I think, you know, to me, if you, you, know, if you have this idea that the human being is, should be afforded a certain sense of dignity, then you have to condemn the abuse of fascism so in all its forms. Got it. So at some point we have to go, there is a universal, don't we? And that universal is love and dignity. We are saying, we're not saying, hey, some people might just get off on abusing people that they <laughs> see are different. At some point you do have to assert a kind of universal idea, right? Well, I think it, it comes to, you know, a sense of um, an innate um, sense of the privilege of what it means to be a human. Mm. And in that sense, if we accept that there is something, you know, which we would all kind of aspire to for our own life, if we recognise that we would all like a life that it's, it's life free of suffering where possible, a life of dignity, mm. a life in which we are able to live with a certain sense of freedom, then that doesn't preclude us from basically saying we're going to condemn the abuse of power in all its forms. Mm. Now, as we know, you know, fascism itself takes many different forms. And part of the project which I've been trying to engage with is, you know, how can we reveal what might look like an exceptional abuse of power or also a very normal abuse of power? And once we start to then engage in that kind of politics, you know, if we want to have a politics based on reciprocity, then it has to be based on a profound notion of equality, whether it's gendered, racial, religious, you know, and this is a big shift in the politics. At the moment, we don't have that. At the moment, there are hierarchies and a strong sense of the other, the strong sort of sense of, which I suppose we're all kind of, like, as a white person living in uh, Britain in the 21st century, I do, like, I have to remind myself when I see, like, one of them dinghies full of people that have come from sub-Saharan Africa, that's all people that are just the same as you. Or actually, even closer to home, when I drive past the bridge on my way here and there are people sleeping on that bridge, I do have to go... That's the same as if you were sleeping under a bridge, mm -hmm. like because my default is there's a reason that they're under that bridge and that I'm going past in this car. Mm -hmm. Everything's all right. So that's what well, the, the mm -hmm. basic personal challenge to overcome is that there is a standard that people are entitled to yeah. to be free from suffering. Yeah, and, and I think you know who cannot relate when you see the images of you know the young children washed up onto a beach of the Mediterranean, right? And you you you, you see these images and. It, it should affect you emotionally. It should affect you. And th this is part, again, going back to politics. You know, often when we study politics in this reason, rational kind mm. of 
approach is we strip emotion out of it. Now, we should be horrified by the world. We should be emotionally moved by the world. What's the point in writing a political book if nobody actually feels moved by it? You know, we have to kind of try to think about bringing these very genuine fears of people that, you know... And Do you think that's the problem? Them. We've excluded that. That's what's happened. In, sort of, one of the results of rationalism, which has like created loads and loads of really brilliant things and ideas and mechanics and all sorts, is that we've forgotten that we are emotional and, I would venture, spiritual beings. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I, I agree with you completely. That You know, there's this... Once you know, once we start politics from from the attempt to strip out emotion, to strip out any sense of who we are as subjects, to strip out what we might call the irreducible elements of life, we strip away the human. Why is there a tendency to do that? Because power likes to oper operate in a very rationalised way, a technocratic. You know, it lends itself to certain forms of government which reduce things, which try to say, well. This is just the way things are done, right? Mm. Um, and which is why, of course, then you see, you know, politics becomes, you know, often the pursuit of, you know, the aged person and there's a great fear of youth. Why, why are youth so, you know, feared by people in political classes? Because they have passion, they have emotion, they have imagination, you know, and th there is that sense, you know, that some of the greatest ideas, you know, might come from younger generations, but we completely just kind of infanti infantilise them and say, oh, well, they're not, you know, they don't know what they're talking about or, you know, they need to be educated in the ways of the world and then we'll grindly, you know, slowly grind out any sense of optimism and imagination they might have. And then, lo and behold, they become trained into doing the way things are ordinarily done because they're now rational and they see the ways of the world and so on. So, so maybe, you know, the, the future is with the children and they know that. One of the things I was most taken with when reading your work at university was your analysis of 9-11 as an event. Some of the things that really stayed with me is that, uh, that in your writing is that you, you said that the, the word terrorism got reduced to the word terror. The word got shortened, but its impact more powerful. And that it's the, first, like the, the normal way we say a date is subverted 9-11 became its an, its own independent icon with the reversal of the month and the date. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about what that event means, why it's important and if it's exceptional? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so briefly going into the, the two points you mentioned, you know, the um, I was often, you know, asked by the question, you know, what was new about 9-11? What was radically unique about 9-11? The first thing you could say, you know, there was the actions of an, of an handful of individuals created the image of a global security crisis, right? So there's this moment which happens. And as you say, what also happens then is the shift from designating 19 individuals as terrorists to terror really extends the, the possibilities because... What, what, what is terror? Right? What terrifies us? It's much broader than saying this is a group of people we might call terrorists. Mm. Now, to have a war on terror is, by definition, unending. Right? There is no end to terror, especially the way politics is understood. Now, in terms of... That's something that we kind of perhaps don't consider enough, is that there's no conclusion ever. There's not like, look, we've just do this war on terror a bit more, and then it'll be done, and then we can get back to that nostalgic, blissful past we've all just made yeah. up. Yeah, and, and connecting this to the question, you say, you know, an exceptional event. And this was a very dominant narrative that comes out straight after, you know, September, the, the, the horrifying violence of September the 11th happens. People such as Tony Blair immediately comes on and basically says, this is the day the world changes forever. 
And then we go to war, some, what, some 19 days later. Now, the first thing you can say, well, if this is truly the day the world changes forever, shouldn't we spend a bit more time reflecting on the political and philosophical significance of this no, event? No, world change forever, let's go! <laughs> Don't yeah. panic! Yeah, you know, so, the, so we have this complete knee-jerk reaction. And, and you know, the, and the, the logic goes, this is an, a, you know, an exceptional event. It requires an exceptional response. Some critics say this leads to an exceptional abuse of power, i.e. Guantanamo Bay and so on. Whereas actually, you know, I would say that the way in which we responded to 9-11 was business as usual. Who didn't expect us to go into Afghanistan and Iraq? And this, you could argue, is precisely what Osama bin Laden wanted. He wanted to create these conditions for a clash of civilizations. Because if you create those conditions, again, both sides kind of benefit from from the conditions of the conflict. Mm. Now, why is this, you know, why is this important? Well, on the one hand, you can say, well... We can kind of deal with exceptional politics. We can we know what it looks like. We can say, well, this is an exceptional event. We see the images, every, you know, on, on all the newspapers of the exploding towers, rather than, for instance, Richard Drew's image of the fallen man, which might have m- focused more on the humane dimensions to the violence, which might have required a more humane response. Well, that's interesting. Odd, isn't it? Well, because there was those those early images, which I think we all freaked out about a bit, of like the people that thought, "I'd oh, rather jump," mm. like being forced into that unimaginable mm. moment of, "Oh, right, this tower's coming down. I'm going to mm-hmm. jump out of it." Those, the, what there was, a famous photographs of the, the of people falling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those images, you think there's something very deliberate against selecting against that type of image in favour of the burning blaze yeah. because so, well, it's civ- about civilizations and not about humans. Well, well, also, but it also plays into the narrative of war, right? You, exploding towers look like war. Those images function in a very political way. They demand a warlike response. Had you had, and, and it's, it's remarkable if you look at all the newspapers on the day after 9/11, all the images look the same. They're all mm. very exceptional. They look like war. Now. Richard Drew's images, you know, the, of the fallen man, they, they, they're not in circulation at all. One newspaper actually published them and then they got kind of, you know, critiqued by the, the political establishment for doing so. But why is that, imp- that image important? Because it focuses you on the human, the single individual. Let's understand his biography. Who was this person, you know? And how might, the, you know, the subsequent day have looked had we have basically said, if every newspaper had focused on the human consequences. I'm not saying newspapers didn't write about the human tragedy, but it was always an immediately wrapped up in a paradigm of war. Now, wh- why is this kind of important? Well... But even me, is a, like, I'm thinking, well, of course, they, you know, like, that was an invasion on foreign territory. It was an attack mm-hmm. on sort of sovereign symbols of power. Mm-hmm. The, the war was the only possible response. Why would you focus on a, a human being? Like, you know, I feel like I'm even personally indoctrinated to accepting and understanding and almost appreciating that the response had to be, no, 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 you can't take out them towers without there being mm-hmm. a powerful military response. Mm-hmm. So why, why is it? Mm-hmm. That I've, why has that worked on me? So, first of all, I, I would argue this is also wrapped up in the way in which we are historically you know, taught to read politics as about survival. Politics is all about them and us. Politics is all about creating these divisions in the world between friends and enemies. Now, moving this on in terms of, you know, what does this kind of mean? If you wrap up the, the event in, in terms of by applying a very particular truth, i.e. this is war, then, of course, what happens is a warlike response. Now, and we can talk about this as being this exceptional crisis, this exceptional moment. We, you know, we need to do this violence because our civilization depends upon it and so on and so forth, right? A non-violent response to 9-11 would have been exceptional. 
The way we responded to the violence of 9-11 was business as usual, which has only gone to further perpetuate the cycles of violence. Isn't it inconceivable? It's inconceivable that something like that could happen and we go, we're not going to do anything. Violence is making stuff worse. Mm -hmm. From now on, no more violence. Mm -hmm. That's inconceivable. What would that even be like? Exactly. We need to demand the impossible. Right. What, 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 would it, what would it have meant for a politician the day after 9-11 to say, right, this apparently is done in the name of Islam. We would put it over to you as Islamic leaders. You tell us why this is not Islamic. You tell us why we might be able to think about this violence as maybe just the handful of criminal, you know, a handful of nameable but dangerous criminals. How can we then... You know, offer a new vision of politics, which, you know, what would it have mean for George Bush the day after 9-11 to say, right, enough. Yeah. Mm. There's been too much violence, too much suffering, too much abuse. Let's put an end to it. Now, it would have been madly beautiful, yeah. but, like, but also sort of impossible because you, we know now, even if we didn't know then, that mm. there were economic imperatives that had to be fulfilled because the, the, mm. the destruction and then reconstruction mm. of Iraq plainly demonstrated what the intentions were. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the relationship that was forged between the, the, the attacks of 9-11 and the response to 9-11, those, that relationship is in construction. No, no. And, and how we kind of, you know, how we narrate, narrate this, this story is, is, as you say, it's wrapped up in power politics. It kind of perpetuates a certain vision of history where violence does become the norm and is accepted as the norm. And, and the, the trouble is, once violence becomes normalised, it's much more difficult to critique. Because, as you say, it's like, well, you know, well, of course we need to go after these bad guys and, of course, we need to bomb this country and, of course, we need to do this. Why wouldn't I wear trousers? Yeah. Trousers are my right as a man. Yeah, I see, because it's so entrenched that it's sort of beyond question. So then people that have popularised non-violence and had success through non-violence, like Martin Luther King and Gandhi... Like, what should we be like? Like, say, like with this podcast, I want people to have listened to it, and I don't want at the end of it go. That was a lot of dense academic uh, language and Russell Brand showing off, uh, sort of down my luggol. I wanted to go. Hold on a minute. I now understand nine eleven in a different way. I understand politics in a different way. And whilst it's too massive a subject to be con- condensed into such a brief time frame. I now see things a little differently. I have indeed got under the skin of the issue. So, like, would you say that one of the commitments people like us who want the world to change, who believe we have an obligation to change the world, who believe there's something about human beings that's worth saving, something that's, call it what you will, divine, holy, beautiful, that that one of the things we should consider is making a a commitment to non-violence on a personal level and on a social, political level national, international level, mm-hmm. non-violence should be a creed. Is that, mm-hmm. Do you think that's worth yeah. exploring? I think, you know, the, um, on the one hand, you know, the question of violence is very difficult and, we, you know, there are, t- there are moments in history where you look at someone and say, well, you know, they're, they're facing such intolerable conditions, who are you to deny these people the right to resist? And I think, you know, uh. so say, for instance, you look at people, you know, the Warsaw Ghetto is an obvious example. Right? Who would deny a person living in the Warsaw Ghetto the right to resist? However... As a more broader, you know, ambition and an ethical ambition, the question we have to kind of come back to all the time is, if you are trying to change the world through violence, what type of people do you produce? Well, invariably, you produce violent people, people who see violence as the norm. Mm. Now, the other question then is, okay, is, well, you know, what types of people then might we produce in terms of 
engaging with people on the basis, on, from the start point, that everybody has a political agency that needs to be respected, that everybody has a certain dignity that we should try to promote, that everybody has a political subjectivity and their own uniqueness, which we should, as far as possible, try to help them realise. Once we start with the politics from that position, we enter into an entirely different, much more optimistic It's like a new constitution, it's like a new Ten Commandments, but those things are always at the beginning of a book that ends up with people crossing a bit of it out and going, well, sorry, I didn't mean them, <laughs> isn't it? That's yeah. what's required. It's like a new constitution, and then when it gets to that bit, we're like, look, I'm just going to cross out that bit because that prevents me from nicking them diamonds. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, Resist and, that bit. And I don't think it's an idealism because I actually think it's... It points actually to the way people do live on a daily basis. You know, as I mentioned, you know, people do try to, you know, have a sense of dignity in their lives. People do start from, you know, building a sense of community out of a shared sense of love. This is not some idealistic, ab you know, abstract fabrication. This is the way people actually live their lives. Yeah, what happened to them Zapatistas? Well, the, the, How did it go then on violent thing? Well, you know, the Zapatistas are still, you know, very. It active. didn't work, did it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they're still very active, and they're still because you know, Mexico's in a right bloody state, isn't it? It's still yeah. like drug cartels everywhere. <laughs> Donald Trump wants them to pay for a wall that they yeah. probably don't want. So, like, what's? But I somehow think you're right about this non-violence thing. I felt when you were saying it then, and when I imagined like George Bush going, "Listen, one thing I've learned from this is no more violence." In fact, I once went to Northern. Ireland, and I expect some credit for this. I went, I went to Northern Ireland and I met with these mothers that were like one was uh, from, I don't know, Protestant background, one was Catholic, and they said, With this thing now, it's famous, and we're, we're like, I lost the son, she lost the son, we've just come together and we're just not having it no more. We just don't want, and, and they spoke to leaders of both of the uh, militia factions and said, well, you don't speak for us no more, can you pack this in? And I think there was sort of, I think it was, I don't know if it was significant in the ultimate ceasefire or whatever, but mm -hmm. I remember thinking there was an incredible grace in it, an mm -hmm. incredible power, and like on a more personal, spiritual level, the principle of forgiveness and surrender, mm -hmm. it's something about it, like, mm -hmm. you know, when, like, and when Gandhi talked about it he said it does something to human beings mm -hmm. to just see someone being violently mm -hmm. abused and not retaliating or responding mm -hmm. to it mm -hmm. in the end it becomes like, oh bloody hell this is mm -hmm. out of order well one of the most difficult and challenging things we do face is how do we break a cycle of violence how do we make a fundamental smash it yeah but <laughs> kick it in the ass <laughs> it's how we make this fundamental break and rupture with the past now you use the word forgiveness and i'm going to you know mention another very easily readable philosopher, Jacques Derrida. Oh, yeah, piece yeah. of cake. Yes. <laughs> and, but Derrida has this, this idea that, you know, to give forgiveness to something, you have to be able to forgive the truly unforgivable. So forgiveness has to be wrapped up, you know, there's no forgiveness if the act in which you're forgiving was forgiven, you know. There has yeah, to that's be... what Derrida does. He's out of order. He? Yeah. he straight away goes, uh, oh, forgiveness, is it? Well, it's only forgiveness if it was unforgivable. <laughs> it's like a villain out yeah. of Batman. But it's... it's like, I've just forgiven someone, mate. Yeah. Can't I get anything for that? No, but... it must have been forgivable. Otherwise, you wouldn't have done it. Yeah. I mean, hasn't he just stuck us right in a paradox? No, no, not at all. Basically, he's saying that in order to be able to forgive something, the act in which you're forgiving must have deeply hurt you. Right. But it takes, as you say, a great deal of courage and grace to be able to say enough. And look at Northern Ireland. That peace could have been conceivable in Northern Ireland 30 years ago. was unimaginable. And yet there is a fraught, contentious, but still a semblance of peace there. That can only happen through a politics of forgiveness and a politics of love. And the fact that you mentioned the mothers, 
is no coincidence because where does the love originate other than for their children? All these ideas, and it might be because of my particular lens, feel like sort of spiritual ideas. Forgiveness, love, the fem- being willing to look at politics through a lens of femininity mm-hmm. and power through a lens of femininity. Mm-hmm. See, I feel like much of... One can... I can understand why religion has had to be pulled back because of the relationship between the religious and know, oppression. and but, the, but this assumed relationship between the religious and the irrational, the assumption that religion mm. is irrational, that I would like to challenge. And that there is something that is super rational, mm-hmm. beyond rationality, not less than rational. Mm-hmm. And th- these are terms mm-hmm. such as grace and mm-hmm. connection, things that are very difficult to quantify. Yeah, and, and also, you know, certain religions have been themselves regimes of power which have led to very dogmatic ways of thinking and ways of living. But what does it mean to have a politics without faith or belief? It's absurd. Yeah. You know? and, and also, you know, without again, without becoming too abstract with this, you know, religion points to the metaphysical. And what we mean by that is simply the idea that we can imagine the world better. Right? That's all it means. We can imagine it, it, the world better. It's not just this is it and it's going to get worse. Yeah, <laughs> That's a terrible yeah, vision. Yeah. I, 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 and what does it mean to live a life stripped away of any sense of a belief in yourself, a belief that the world can be better? I think most that... people are living like that. I think the best most people can hope for, and like think, speaking for myself, is I might personally be able to make things a bit better. I could win the lottery. I might get mm-hmm. good at football or I might, you know, like something might go right for me. I don't think there are that many people now that, you know, po- like and perhaps it was this post the 60s. Is this when the 60s became the 80s? I know mm-hmm. the 70s was in the middle. I know how numbers work. But like, you know, like that... When that idealism and when that cultural revolution, whether it was through drugs or commodification, became nullified and sold back as consumerism and individualism, Mm. that along with it, perhaps we lost the idea that we can imagine and create new worlds Mm -hmm. based on new principles, that we don't have to exist within the terms as you define them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, everything is finite. and Political projects and political ideals are certainly finite. And we need to basically have this understanding. You know, we need to recapture something of the idea that the world can be transformed for the better at the level of a certain collective consciousness. Now, how do we go about that? Well, it needs an entirely new, different conversation. Um, and the, my question is, well, what would be the alternative? You know, on the one hand, you say that we can have this individual conception, the best I can do is kind of transform my own lot, but, you know, to hell with the rest of the world. Mm. Or the, the alternative is we say, well, the world is just somehow catastrophically fated. That is, you know, in other words, it's a will to nothing. And what is a will to nothing if it's not nihilism? That's awful news. I mean, do you think that the concern might... Sometimes I wonder what the basis biochemistry, what basis astronomy have in these prevailing philosophical beliefs, i.e. astronomically, it is quite likely that, you know... (laughs) The, the, the Earth is heading towards well. Well, I suppose we don't know the term. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Uh, like we, we don't know what nothing. I don't know what sort of physical annihilation ultimately leads to. I suppose that's why you do require a spiritual dimension. Mm-hmm. Once Brian Cox has gone on the telly and gone, do you know what the world is eventually? I mean, the sun itself, the whole thing is going to implode. We don't know what the universe is expanding into. Mm-hmm. But that's not happening now. We could have a nice time on the way. Mm-hmm. We could try and connect with something that's beyond mm-hmm. the physical and the material mm-hmm. while we're here on Earth, and then. Perhaps 
perhaps those things wouldn't seem so bleak. And mm. on the biochemical front, I sometimes think because our bodies are doing so much without our knowledge mm-hmm. or explicit conscious knowledge and interaction, that it leads us to believe that there are sort of powerful forces managing everything. Mm. Yeah. How are you at way? I wonder this about academics. Why aren't you a bit more into the conspiracy theories? Okay. So, <laughs> so, 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 Get so, into them! So, so, so two, two points. One, the, the example you use, um, nobody understood this better than Nietzsche. Right? Nietzsche writes this small parable where he talks about, we're on this planet, the planet's going to burn. Wow. Now, some people have written this as a point of nihilism. Nietzsche says, no, what we have now is everything. Let's... You know, let's live life like it is. At the Good end. news! Yeah. The planet's going to burn. Yeah, <laughs> but it, but it, but this is a point of you know how do we kind of construct an ethics again, which is based on the idea that okay, life might be finite, but we we are you know. Let's kind of deal with this, right? Now, in terms of conspiracy theories, I have no time for conspiracy theories because to me, the abuses of power leave enough visible traces without you ever needing to go to a conspiracy. Right. No. It's bloody obvious. If 80 people... Well, it's not even 80 anymore, is it? Isn't it, like, probably changed since last time? Five people now have as much money as 3.5 billion poorest people. Hold on, since I started saying that sentence, one of them has nicked the money off one of the other rich ones. It's now four people have got... No, three people! So, like, yeah, the, as you say, there's enough traceable stuff without needing to get... Yeah. Don't even waste your time with it. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, yeah. There's, there's enough visible traces of the way power abuses people and... You know, it's detrimental to the lives of vast swathes of populations. Isn't that doing a bit that thing you said on Question Time of allowing them to define the terms of engagement and the argument? Wouldn't people that are into conspiracies and stuff say that? No, because I think people who are into a conspiracy theory always reaffirm a theory they've already kind of got in their head, right? Right. And when we're dealing with politics, the worst thing you can do is start with a theory. Get in there with the facts. Yeah, start with an empirical problem. And then say, how can we just use theory as a tool, right? Oh, I like this. This is like school. Yeah, yeah. Theory is just like a toolbox. You know, sometimes a theorist might work for you. He might raise the right type of question for you. Other times he doesn't. We don't owe, you know, any of these theorists anything. We don't have to canonise them. We don't have to say these people, we have to read them because, you know, that just leads to sovereign thinkers, right? Mm. What we need to do is say, let's start with this problem. How can we draw upon all these different intellectual resources to try to make better sense of the world. So the problem is we've just got this planet, there's this many people on it, there's this many resources, there is a bit of time before the old explosion of the sun. We should be doing things a bit better because human beings are worthy of grace and dignity. Are we using the tools to the best possible outcome or have a small group of people, through one way or another, sort of taken over and are diverting resources towards themselves in a way that's no longer acceptable to make things really, really bad? Precisely. Thank you very much for coming as a guest. Will you come pleasure. again? Absolutely, of course I will. Thanks a lot. You look really nice. You're really nice. I really appreciate these gifts also. It's really kind of you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's great I didn't get to loads of my questions, all these things, when I brought up the synchronising emotions, end of space. I'll do all these things next time, will I? Part two. Brad Evans, thank you very much for getting under the skin with me, Russell Brand. If you liked this show, please subscribe to it immediately. It's very important for us that we get subscribers. Also, could you go and give it a five-star review on iTunes? Because I think that's of some value to us. It's a nice feeling, isn't it, to give something a five-star review? I don't think I've ever given anything less than a five-star review. It's cruel. So thanks for listening to the show. Go and give it a five-star review. And remember to subscribe. Thanks. Russell Brand, Under the Skin.